Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with my twin brother, Henry Fraser, who is an academic at Oxford University and an uh, athlete and musician, general brainy human being and family member. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I feel like you've um, overstated each of the things that I am. Um, well, you're an. Ac- I mean, technically, you're an academic. Well, I'm doing. I'm doing a PhD. I don't know if that makes me an academic or a baby academic. I an think embryonic, a proto, a fetus kind of thing. Uh, I think these recording levels are going to be quite low for whatever reason. So you kind of have to eat the mic a little bit. Really? Yeah. Better. Better. Uh, that's okay. Um, why do you feel that I'm overstating your qualifications? Well, that uh, well, yeah. So I'm not an academic because I, I haven't published anything. Yeah, I think you have to be publish stuff to be an academic. I don't teach. Um, not an athlete because I don't really compete at a high level, or rarely at all. I'm not a musician. Well, the sort of uh, yeah, almost uh, yeah, approximately being a musician. But even that, I'm not doing so much anymore. So what are you then? I'm nobody. <laughs> a girl must be nobody. I am stuck. Um, uh, so a girl is not nobody. <laughs> Game of Thrones. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I no. mean, I like it when I do watch it, but I don't have Foxtel in Australia, and in Australia, uh, we can only steal it. Yeah, you can just wait for. You can get on iTunes and stuff. But yes, they have this um, predilection for casting Germans in roles of anyone who's mysterious. Weirdly, they cast a German, um, which is cool, I guess. I guess it's, uh, you know, reclaiming Germanity. As a cool thing rather than as a sinister thing. Or sort of, it's sort of hopscotching off the sinister thing. It's no longer like definitely sinister it's potentially sinister (laughs) yes i wonder how germans feel about being described as potentially sinister i just mean the accent is i mean for for good reason then they were the villains in a lot of hollywood type movies for many years and so they got that sort of if it's a german accent it's definitely a sinister person and now that's sort of worn off a bit with their eu benevolence and general sort of well, some don't agree about the benevolence. I'm not well enough informed. Uh, Possibly have an opinion, but um, <laughs> but yes. Just allow me to extrapolate this theory of German benevolence. Please go ahead. Which has taken the edge off the sinisterness or the sort of automatic sinisterness of the German accent. In popular culture, you don't need to be well informed about the issues to know that there is a perception. Whether there oh, are yes, yes, but in order to make it, to decide whether they are or aren't benevolent. Well, but I am not talking about whether they are or aren't benevolent. I'm mm. talking about whether they are or aren't perceived to be benevolent in terms of casting choices, which is what well, we're talking about. Well, in Hollywood, yes. It's not... The German accent needn't be a villain's accent. Yeah, it isn't automatically a villain's accent, but it is now a mysterious accent rather than a sinister accent. I'm glad we unpacked that. Yes, well, because they've got, they've got, who have they got as a German? They've got Jacken Hagar, the faceless man, is a redhead, well, he's redhead German, then the red witch, Melisande. 
Is she actually? Also, are they German? Um, are they German actors, or are they just doing German accents? Now that's an interesting. No, no, no. I think they're German actors. Ah. You know, I can't remember either of their names, but they struck me as pretty German, kind of Jürgen type names. Um, and then also, the only Game of Thrones cast member whom I've met um, is also German. Who was the Game L- of Thrones uh, cast member that you? Her met? name she ca- she was in like I don't know second season or when when the Khaleesi meets some like desert prophet person. She was unfortunately for her she was in a veil, so she doesn't get the glory of being seen on Game of Thrones. But her oh name was La- Laura Laura Pradelska, also German. Interesting. What was she cast her? as the mysterious prophet again? Mystery. It's a German mystery. And and how did you meet her? She was one of the first people I met when I came to London through um, our cousin Lara. Our glamorous cousin Lara. Our cousin Lara were I. Basically, I think that Lara introduced me. Put I don't know if she introduced me. I think she just was kind of like set us up to hang out, or like had got this girl to oh, invite you'll me like to a this party. Person, yeah. Well, no, she just was really nice and got this girl and her peeps to invite me to like a party in Belsize Park, which was hilarious. Well, our cousin, our cousins on our dad's side are very glamorous, and Lara is particularly glamorous, and she's she runs, you know, she does PR and and um, sort of. I think PR, I, d- I don't know. It involves, if you look at her Instagram, which you should, it's called Fancy Pants with a Z at the end. It's just a cavalcade of just glamorousness. And I don't quite know what it is, the work that she does, but it certainly involves a lot of, a lot of like it's pictures of delicious food and then she's doing yoga and then she's at a party and it's like, it looks like an amazing lifestyle. I mean, not the kind of lifestyle that appeals to me at all, but... Uh, Yes, I can imagine that she would be the kind of person who would have friends who would have parties in Belsize Park that were hilarious. They were hilarious. Um, Tell me. Oh, I don't have a, a hugely... Uh, I don't have a recollection because it was would have been four years ago. So I just rec- recall a few details, um, one of which was um, a guy called Daniel, I think. He had a, He had quite lustrous thick mane of hair and a German accent um, and had he sort of had he called me darling I have no idea if he was straight or gay it's not really relevant but he had a sort of he had the manner of a person who calls you darling calls another man darling an actor was he an actor well he was definitely you know artistically interested Um, and you know yeah he called me darling he told me I was beautiful uh, um, but, but again, in the kind of way that wouldn't indicate necessarily no, no, whether he was. No, like no, not at all. That's right. So that's I was like, this is great. It's very <laughs> it's cosmopolitan. Nice to be told that yeah. you're beautiful. <laughs> it's lovely to be told you're beautiful. And then, uh, then we men they don't had get told that they're beautiful. There was enough. a lot of champagne, um, which I obviously I don't drink champagne, but um, there was there was strawberries and cream, and was sort of sitting in a garden and talking about fabulous events. You know, and peoples, and oh, the play. You must come down to our place in, um, uh, uh, you know, outside Avignon in the lavender fields in the south of France. <laughs> like, 
you know. Um, and why did you not then immediately hook into this high society? I just didn't have the energy to sustain that level of fabulosity. Yeah, fabulosity, Germanity. Yeah, they were German. So they were Germans as well. I'm like, and I think Germans can do that. They can be like, "Oh yeah, hi, darling." Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, a glamour. Beautiful man. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, th- I don't think men get told that they're beautiful enough in our society. They get, we're sort of, we've gone straight through from men's appearances not being important at all, sort of, except insofar as they were manly or unmanly, and then immediately insecurities. Without any of the kind of the praise and idolatry that happens, you like it's sort I of. I think there's praise. I think the praise is you know there's a culture of posting stuff on Instagram of like doing oh yes I've got my deadlift PB, um, yeah gains with a Z, and then it's like yeah beast man like you know and then they yeah, make kind of say that sort of stuff. someone saying that they're beautiful. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah, probably not beautiful. But I don't know if men want to be told they're beautiful exactly. But it made you feel good when the flat, fabulous German man it told did, didn't, you. No, I wouldn't say it made me feel good. It didn't make me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> it just, I was like, oh, okay, there's that. Made I think I said, oh, yeah, I was, oh, you're not so bad yourself. Uh, <laughs> 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 what do you say to that? Yeah, that's it's difficult. I mean, compliments generally are difficult. I find them very difficult. After shows, I find compliments particularly difficult um, because you're exhausted and there's no way of knowing if they're sincere or not. But also, if nobody says something to you after a show, you know that you've failed. Uh, No, I don't think so. I don't think if nobody says anything to you after a show, that means anything. It might just mean that it so happens that on that day, people are... It might mean that you are so amazing that people are intimidated to approach you. Like, um, but but I, yes, I think I must say that I find nothing worse than knowing that I performed badly and then receiving compliments. Yeah, it's the worst. Um, I don't know pr- exactly why. I think maybe it's the dissonance between how I feel and, and sort of patronizing of me, you know, that someone else enjoyed it and to like dismiss their enjoyment is irrelevant, but... It might be that because I know that, that I've just played shit and they've told me that I'm great, that in fact, yes, every compliment you receive is completely meaningless. Yeah. Um, so I think the key is just to feel happy with how you've performed. So for me, the best kind of compliment or the one that is effective, if it's immediately after a show, unless it's like en masse and clearly like overwhelmingly sincere, which is difficult, if it's just a compliment, then you immediately dismiss it as sort of wallpaper. The best one, I got this today from a fellow performer who didn't see my set. She came later and she sent me a message today saying, I'm sorry I missed your set. I heard it was really, really good. That's a good compliment. I think uh, That's a good compliment, yeah. whether it's true or not. It may be just an insincere compliment. but uh, It could be just, it's like the second level. Yeah, the second level of like, oh, they've heard that I'm good, which means somebody else thinks I'm good enough to tell somebody else rather than just or post. The, well, there are so many things. They could just be lying that they heard you were good. Like yeah, they that's could what just I mean. Saying that. Absolutely. Or the person could have lied to them because they think, oh, this person is your friend and therefore I don't want to be known as the person who was like 
talk shit about them behind the back. Well, she was a stranger to me, so uh, that was. Oh well, that's good. No, you can take that. I think Russell Brand. Uh, I was. I was quite. Um, I was quite uh, taken with his point on compliments, which is, um, it has to be. It has to be specific in order to be. Val, you know that it, he needs it immediately, and he needs it specifically, or something like that. He needs like a specific feedback on something that was good. On something that was good. Yeah, I like I like specific feedback if it's something that I can improve or make a note of. No, but if th- like if they say you know that joke where you said blah 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 blah. See, that doesn't even work for me because then I immediately think, what about all the other jokes? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. It's like, why did you like that one and not all the other ones? Like, it's really bad. It's no, not that's bad. Even I, I'm not that bad. I'm which not. is... If some if someone says, oh, I like that song and I think I played the song well and I know that I didn't play other songs that well, I'm like, well, at least I played that one well. Yeah. I Yeah, I don't know. I It's not a good way to be. And I understand why comedians get drinking and relationship problems. <laughs> Because unless you can disconnect yourself from your jokes, it's if somebody likes you or they don't like you. I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago on my podcast with uh, Mitch Alexander, who is a heavy metal singer and a sort of comedian, sort of an open micer, up and comer comedian. He takes it, he does it for fun more than he does it for career. He's more interested in his music. But he. He was saying it's very hard for people to find somebody, a worthwhile person and a bad comedian. If a comedian is not to your taste, you're unlikely to enjoy them as a human being. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I'd say that's fair. Which, but I don't think it necessarily is fair because I don't, I don't even do the kind of comedy that I like. I mean, I like my comedy, but when I, the comedians that I like don't necessarily do what I do. Yes. Um, Yes. Well, I think that if someone, the things that somebody finds funny, you know, if you don't find those things funny, that is a source of real potential conflict because things that are funny are always disturbing in some way, you know, mildly or greatly disturbing. That's why you laugh to release the tension. And if it just so happens that they've picked something that is not funny to you, then it's probably going to be a source of tension to you and therefore they're unbearable to be around because they just do not share a worldview that you can get behind. You know, if they're laughing at things that you really think are not funny, then it's quite hard to be around them, I would imagine. Yeah, maybe. But laughing at something that's funny is different. Laughing at something is different from writing a joke about something as well. That's true. That's true. Yeah, you can write you can write a joke about something that is terrible and and you know, find something funny to say about it. That's true. Or even that you can share a viewpoint with somebody and they can have all of the same opinions about what is and is not ridiculous about that thing, but you just might not be a good enough joke writer to bring out the thing that is you know, you might be being ironically 
ironically performing the wrong side of the argument, but just in a slightly clumsy way that doesn't get your viewpoint across. Yeah. Yeah. That's true too. But it comes across as unlikable rather than unskillful. Or that the lack of skill is inherently unlikable in a way that it isn't. If somebody does a shitty drawing, you don't think that they're a less good person. Yes, that's true. But if someone does a shitty drawing and then decides that it's worthy of displaying a gallery and like really gets behind it and tries to invite 200 people to see it, it says something about their perception of the world, right? In the same way as a crappy stand-up comedian thinks that what that, that viewpoint, which is hideous or boring or dull or inane or offensive or just stupid or, um, you know, grating, you know, it might be funny thing, but just the manner is grating and the fact that they haven't noticed those things, all of those things and decided that they want to share all of those things with the world probably has something to say about their psychology and that, and in turn, whether they're the kind of person who you want to be a friend. Well, how would you... S- so, for example, consider a comedian like Jimmy Carr. Would you want to have a dinner with him? Because he's inarguably an extremely skilled writer and has enough taste to bring extremely skilled writers onto his team now that he's kind of generating too much material for one man. Secondly, he clearly doesn't believe the things that he's saying. He's not espousing a particular political view with his jokes. But he find, he seems to find certain things funny or expect that you will find certain things funny that are sort of inherently repugnant. Yeah, I, I don't really know that, see that much of his stuff. I've only seen him, you know, in QI and bits and pieces here and there. Not a big panel show watcher. Um. Yeah, I don't know. You no don't comment. Know. <laughs> no comment. Oh, I just laid. I just laid out a table, and you said you weren't hungry. <laughs> um. Well, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it's like. What are you drinking at the moment? What's your tea? Having chamomile from uh, Fortnum and Mason, um, provided by. Uh, my mother-in-law, Gail. Thanks, Gail. Um, when she was visiting us here, she went to Fortnum and Mason, saw Prince Charles there, as you do at Fortnum and Mason, the was royal he tea have, Was he just warrant. buying some tea or was he having a viewing of himself? Um, was it an official event or was he just hanging out? In I mean, there was press there, so I suppose he was trying to, you know, there, there was some element of Well, he's got a propaganda jam involved. sort of company doesn't he a jam company no he's he's got a he's got a whole movement of organic farming and oh this is it yeah my theory about prince charles i worked out when i was in new zealand i can't remember if i've talked about it before i don't think i have talked about it before that like this impression that culturally persists about prince charles being sort of a flaccid person is it though what is that a pr- an impression that persists? Yeah, I think that is an impression, particularly in Australia, the idea that, oh, no, it'll be really embarrassing when he's king and why don't they just skip over and go to the blonde one? Does anyone really care, though? Does anyone no, a, actually a, think No, but that? I mean, no one really cares, but I think there is a cultural perception of him as flaccid, which my theory is came up when he was a hippie. Was he a hippie? Yeah, well, he's this whole like organic farming. Can an farming. aristocrat be a hippie? Well, this is the whole thing that he was. He was, you know, saying that plants could hear, you know, could hear music and 
and that you had to have organic food and locally sourced and all of that stuff, which are now really popular ideas. But the 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 shade of having had those ideas when they were unpopular has made us think of him as kind of weak. Well, those kinds of ideas are in a way, you know, local and sustainable farming that is the essence of what is good about aristocratic an aristocratic worldview in the very oldest sense a kind of feudal worldview there's not that much that's good about a feudal worldview just let me qualify that (laughs) but if it does have anything good about it it's the notion of your lineage um, of inheritance having depended on the good decisions of your ancestors and the achievements of your ancestors. And obviously there's a lot of focus on like who they killed um, to keep their power. But there's also that element of being a kind of custodian of your holding, in his case, England, <laughs> um, Wales, the Prince of Wales. Um, in, but in his case, yeah, Britain. And it's a very agricultural thing. You know, it's the same with the the... King of Thailand uh, and the royal family, the princess as well, are known for having studied and devoted a lot of attention to improving agriculture in Thailand. That's that's kind of, I think, you know, where where royalty is respected, there is that... Noblesse oblige sort of stuff. But specifically to do with sustainability and you know, that very fundamental agricultural outlook. That the king is the country and the country is his responsibility. And the, and land, the land, yeah. yeah. that the land is the responsibility of the people whose blood is tied to the land. I mean, generally a stupid idea, but that element of it is nice. Yeah. It's kind of, it's w- yeah, it's very atavistic. It has, you know, in the same way as even indigenous cultures have that very strong connection, maybe that very ancient idea of connection with the land does have that benefit, that upside. And what interesting things have you been thinking about recently? Uh, well, I won't say my thesis is interesting and I will not say a word about it really, um, but I've been thinking about that a lot. Other than that, I've tr- you know I finally made the transition into being a person who listens to podcasts. This is new for me. That's exciting. So you, you finally figured out what I've been doing for the last couple of years. <laughs> Well, no, I knew you were podcasting. It's just I didn't listen to your podcast. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to ask you if you listen to my podcast now because I'm pretty sure the answer is no. Sometimes I listen to it, um, but not, I'm not a regular listener. If I want a dose of you, I just talk to you. <laughs> That's um, true. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird eavesdropping on your conversations with strangers in a way that it might not be weird for other strangers to do. Yes, you know me in a particular mode. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and it's also like you don't stick around here to watch me work. Yeah. You're not like just sitting there watching over my shoulder like, what's he writing now? And what about the next? Oh, look what he did. He highlighted. He highlighted (laughs) and deleted. Oh, no, pasted. Cut and paste. You know, it's just there's that element to it as well. Yes. Um, So, yes, but I've been... I've been listening to podcasts. Uh, well, what are your top three podcasts? Well, they're super. It's a it's a weird um, spread. Um, I think the great thing about podcasts is that you listen to things that you are in the mood for when you are in the mood for them. Yeah, that is great. That is great. Um, so uh, any podcast that you're listening to, 
is basically your favorite podcast at the time that you're listening to it. Unless you've run out of content and are moving to like second best. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm listening. So uh, the first podcast that I listened to, the one that I did, you know, before I listened to podcasts, there's one that I did listen to, which you recommended to me ages ago. And that's Dan Carlin. Um, because Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, because it is mind-blowingly good. Yes. Um, he just, he, I, he affects this persona of just being an average Joe, but he's obviously, he's, he's studied history and he obviously has a lot of experience in broadcasting or something uh, in a kind of a possibly public broadcasting or broadcasting to a broad base anyway. And he and I suspect also he spent a bit of time studying Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, who was the who was the famous scientist Carl Sagan yeah yeah people like that because his manner especially he, his rhythms and his manner of speech is very similar to Neil deGrasse Tyson when I've actually heard them put heard them one after the other but that's really interesting if you think of the role of of those both those kind of uh, outputs as being taking something that is not populist and making it accessible. Yeah, that's right. And he obviously sees that, and and he's always saying, "Oh, I am not a historian." I, you know, he's self-deprecating. I'm a fan of history, but he must know that he is the man, um, because like, he, for example, his podcast on two really blew me away. Um, he does these long series you know, of three or four episodes of three to four hours each. They're so amazing. So it's, it's the, you know, I think 12 hours of speaking is close to reading a sort of a short, short to medium short book, maybe a 200-page book or something. Oh, like. it's a, no, it's a, a novel length. And 12 That's hours, I don't 12 know. 12 hours is, I mean, I've listened to a lot of audiobooks in my time. Uh, yeah, 12 hours is about the length of a regular-sized book. Yeah, not a huge giant book, just a sort of a sm- more small to medium-sized book. But yeah, like it's a book book. It's not, it's no longer like novella size. It's a, it's a proper novella, book. Novella. novella. It's yeah. one of those ones that I, I didn't know whether it was Lido or Lido until yeah, the other day. Yeah, I still day. don't know. I still haven't bothered to learn. Apparently it's Lido. They say Lido, but I don't yeah. think it matters. Yeah. It's not a real yeah. word. Yeah, no, it's not a real word. <laughs> and then uh, having had that, disp- d- uh, we'll return. I digress, but no, it's, it's too delicious to pass up. Um, having had the Lido Lido discussion, someone managed to um impose on my credulity and and uh, convince me that english people say migraine instead of migraine some of them do <laughs> do they <laughs> do yeah you um, were not led hugely astray yeah some people say migraine but they're i'm suffering from a migraine <laughs> um Yes, but Dan Carlin, so yes, he's one on ancient Rome, three or four episodes on the fall of, or the end of the Roman Republic and just the sort of series of events and personalities involved. And then he did one on, it, th- that was really good. Then he did one on, on the Mongols and the Mongol Empire, which mm. was really good. Phenomenally good. Phenomenally good. I think the Roman one was still better. And then he did the one in World War One, which was just ridiculous. It, it, it the World War One thing, so devastating to listen to. Well, it's I'd learned all of those things at school. You know, I'd learned about all these battles, and had a vague recollection of the sequence of events. But he's a very compelling storyteller, and he has a he's very sincerely fascinated by what you know. He's he's the question he always wants. Well, the thing he always wants you to do is to put yourself in that situation and try and 
see how imagine how you would feel and you know always what you would be thinking or what you'd be feeling having had those um, cultural inputs and then being put into that situation that's the thing that he always does and he's very good at it you know what he's really similar to uh, now now that you've put it that way and this is one of the reasons why I like her so much one of my favorite science fiction fantasy writers Lois McMaster Bujold so I think she's one of the best science fiction writers around because the golden age science fiction guys are all a little bit on the spectrum in terms of they write about the events and the technologies and the the heroic acts or the people, but they don't write about how people would feel. And so she does this real imaginative thing where she posits the the worlds and the technologies and then she thinks about how they would affect people. How would that make you feel about your family or your country or your planet in and, and how that how you would interact with other people and where the power dynamics would fall and no, I think those golden age guys do even especially like Frank Herbert with his uh, oh. weird cu- well he sort of does the 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 cultural stuff of oh these are the technologies and so people act this way but it's sort of a bit ridiculous but they're all sort of weird people yeah they're super weird and and un- and hard kind of unrelatable so that's what she does she does sort of how you would feel if you were a you know, yeah. Well, Ursula Gwyn with the uh, right, left hand, of left darkness hand of darkness is sort of the perhaps the originator of that. Yeah, mode. she is the originator of that. Even that is slightly disconnected, I think. Well, I it's speculative. They have alienating. those things. Like Asimov does speculative fiction as a sort of problem-solving exercise. Like he sets up, he'll literally have rules, like robot rules. He'll s- he'll set up the rules and then like. Oh man, I had the most infuriating review where someone saw my robot song in the set and said she knows the three laws of ro- she knows that there are three laws of robotics, but she gets them wrong. <laughs> it's just oh god, <laughs> made me want to just. Anyway, sorry, continue. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, so Dan Cullen, awesome. And I think someone said, maybe Pat, um, he said, oh, uh, you know, forget about, you could forget about the high school history curriculum teaching of World War One. just sit the kids in the classroom and press play. Yeah. Like it's sort of rendered obsolete and it's hard to disagree. It, it is that good for a beginner as an exposure to the whole set of ideas and problems and Yeah, and all of the players. And he does enough references to the source materials that he uses that you could just li- – you could do that and then give them a reading list, you know, for, to pursue their further interest. I would say – Of the source? Well, I think you could just – I mean, you could use him as your guide of the things that he cites, just give them – that, you know, I don't know how much kids read at school anymore, I can't remember, but like, you know, give them the five pages before and the two pages after or two, you know, just sort of a six or seven page passages of this, that and the other that, that he's quoted and gosh, that would give you a, a pretty good high school education in history. Yeah. I f- that's what I feel like. I feel like I've sort of re been re-gifted a high school education in history, a very good one from an amazing teacher. Yeah. Um and and it, and it avoids and but even to the point it almost gets to the point of being genuinely scholarly in that it he'll he will expose you to the controversies. Yes. You know, he's he he will give you the impression that there are different points of view, but it doesn't he won't get to the point of real historiography and um and uh, because that's not fun for anyone who's not really interested. 
Yeah, but as um, you say, as an opening door as to that. Well, as a more than opening door, it really gets you as far as you could ever wish for someone else to take you without you having to do any work. Yeah. Um, really, it's it's a gift. So, so Dan Cullen, that's one. Gosh, I went on about that for a little while. That's because um, it's good and it deserves um, so there's that. And then the other person I've been really getting into is Sam Harris, who is, uh, who I'll get back to. And then the third one uh, is really, it's two separate podcasts, but it's just a bunch of guys. And they interesting, another interesting point to return to is they call themselves a network or they think of themselves as a network, as an alternative to the commercial broadcasting network, that they are a network of people who performs on each other's shows and are connected and have the same fan base and do stuff together crossover. Mm. Um, but Joe, so that's Joe Rogan and so the Joe Rogan experience and he has Brendan Schaub and Brian Cullen from the fighter and the kid. Um, and then he also gets on Eddie Bravo, who is a jujitsu guy who came up with his own particular brand and approach to jujitsu. Uh, so those four guys and their various endeavors, but mostly mediated through Joe Rogan. And that's my other one, which is a totally different one because that's like really like blokey chat. It's like a lot of UFC bloke chat and like not de- precisely misogynistic. I don't think any of them really I genuinely disrespect women, but they have a sense of their, 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 the stuff that they joke about is a little... Um, It's a little inconsiderate of women, maybe, sometimes. See, I find them unpleasant to listen to, despite the fact that I think they have really interesting conversations and really interesting ideas, and that Joe Rogan is in some ways an extremely original thinker, and in other ways an extremely derivative thinker. Just listening to them for an extended period makes me feel a bit bad. Yeah, and I I feel like I have no place in that world. I don't know, because I do think that Joe Rogan... He's he definitely speaks to more men than women on his podcast because he's a man's man and he's interested in men more than he's interested in women. I think that's probably what it is. I don't think he's misogynistic in the sense that he really has no respect for women or doesn't appreciate women or thinks that women are in any way deserve to be unequal. I don't think he holds any you know, I think he holds egalitarian, respectful views, but he hasn't he doesn't see the point of um Policing his language, and it's like, I mean, it's a big ask for a comedian as well to ask them to do it, but he doesn't see the point of being careful about how he talks about them. He yes. doesn't really, he's not interested, he doesn't get the argument, or maybe he does, but he's just completely not persuaded by it, arguments about language and, this, and the power structure that they create, and he just does not buy into it at all. See, I would say... I'd to have the point where he's a bit contrary as well. Yeah, I get we'll that he's stir, a bit contrarian, we'll and I get that he's kind of making a point of using the language that he thinks is, you know, fine and harmless. I would respect him more if he used that language and was contrarian and also had women on his podcast. But he does have women on his podcast. At the same kind of, in the same proportions. Yeah, he has more men than more than women. So but I then don't think you can <laughs> say that the language that you use doesn't perpetuate power structures when, for example, you are perpetuating those power structures actively is he actively perpetuating the power structures or is that within the fact his that own he sort is of network he is and i'm uh, not saying he's that guy, he's obliged I mean, not to i'm just saying that i find it unpleasant to listen to yeah, more than an hour he's perpetuating those power structures because his interests are 
if you can have a set of gendered interests, they're pretty gendered. You know, he likes hunting, cage fighting, uh, and psychedelic drugs. And he likes to talk about, and like AI and robots and, and nutrition, health and nutrition. So the, it tends to be that he'll have female comedians who he, he so and he loves, likes comedy. So when he interviews women, it tends to be female comedians because that is the group of people where he has, to. where he, well, no, w- that is a group of women with whom he shares an interest. But the number of women, I would imagine, and maybe this is sexist of me, but I suspect that it would be backed up by evidence, who are really into UFC would be less than the number of men. The number of women who are really into hunting would probably be significantly less than men. The number of women who are really like passionate about like advocating psychedelic drugs, I suspect again. Yeah, I understand your defense. And I'm just saying that for those reasons and the tone of his podcast while I enjoy engaging with his ideas disagreeing or agreeing with them in small doses occasionally I will never be a regular listener because I listen for a while and then after a while I start to feel a bit icky yeah fair enough fair enough I wonder how he would feel about knowing that I probably I suspect he wouldn't care I imagine he wouldn't care because I, I think if he would care that like that it, well, it's hard to know I think part of of being interested in anything for most people who are not hugely self-aware. Most people are not hugely self-aware, but even people who are self-aware. Your assumptions are that the things you find interesting, you find them interesting because they are interesting. And therefore, people who are not interested in the things that you find interesting are not interesting. And therefore, women, as you say, he's not interested in the things that women are interested in. I think partly there's a there's an underlying possibly unexamined, possibly examined assumption that women are less interesting. As a general rule, with some exceptions, made up mainly of his friends. <laughs> I don't know, like, the women who he does get on tend to be pretty interesting. Yeah, but that's exactly what I mean. They tend to be, you know, so, well, he, you know, he interviewed the ones that I've listened to, uh, and I, I must say I've mostly just listened to... That doesn't, I listen that doesn't to jo- I don't listen to point. Joe Rogan for his, for his serious podcast. I listen to him usually for the... The Fight Companion, which is him just like talking bullshit with his mates about UFC. But the uh, the women ones that I have listened to, he, he interviewed Misha Tate, who is the world champion, who beat the person who beat Ronda Rousey. Ooh. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, on the Fight Companion talking, um, you know, just, just man, lad, um, bants with his mates, he would be like, oh, you know, she's super hot and blah, 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 blah. So he can simultaneously uh, occupy that particular persona of lad chat about women's appearance, and then also interview her and express a huge amount of admiration and you know interest and um, um, respect. So, but so that was interesting. Then his other, the really interesting one is Rhonda Patrick, who's a um, physiologist, Doctor Rhonda Patrick, who's a physiologist um, who's interested in exercise physiology and and nutrition and basically health span which he's obsessed with um so yeah rightly so health span's a really interesting area of i mean it's the area of our generation i think because our our parents are doing lifespan and i think that some of that extended lifespan push for extended lifespan is going to lead to a lot of people going holy shit i do not want to be old like that i don't want to live forever if it looks like that and it's about how long you can 
live like you live now or as close to how you live now as you can sustain as long as you can and then you just want to turn the lights off. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she's very interesting and Rhonda Patrick, I would almost consider her, I feel like her podcast is just slightly too nerdy for me to be able to like listen to it in a relaxed way because it's like massive information hit of like but it makes you kind of excited and like maybe yeah. I should look that up yeah. yeah yeah and I can sort of handle 15 minutes at a time of just like information about diet and nutrition and and um, sleep and um, and training and you know training phasing and eating rhythms and you know cold shock and heat shock yeah but anyway so yes that's the Joe Rogan um, and then the other one was Sam Harris which I don't know if you want to talk about it's your podcast uh, we can talk about Sam Harris. I'm interested. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that they're sort of the three that you find the most kind of appealing at the moment. At the moment, yeah, um, uh, yeah. So, so well, yeah. I think to the jo- I think because I spend all my time in a a bubble of like extremely precious scholarly communication, where everything has to be so. Um, correct. Everything has to be so um, follow a certain pattern of reasoning and structure and citation and um, defense. You know, it's a lot of yeah, a lot of like thinking defensively and writing defensively. Yeah. What if somebody say, says this? What if somebody yeah, says that? That's right. So I, I spend a lot of time too. like that. And you know, my outlet used to be that I would just read like crappy fantasy. I think we might have even talked about this on the podcast. Just yeah. I mean, that's still my outlet. I yeah, uh, but I think that instead, just listening to like some lad chat is pretty soothing. <laughs> <laughs> People with like unconsidered and like non-defensive <laughs> attitudes that they'll just say stuff that you could pick holes in, or that you you know is questionable, or what they call problematic, but no one cares and no but one pulls them up. And, and they're they're kind of somewhat drunk or stoned while they're talking they just kind of move on to another <laughs> another defensive <laughs> problem, just like yeah. rush, you know kind of doze through it it's nice it's relaxing yeah but then sam harris is very he's not de- he's not defensive i really admire him f- for that they were all very different you know dan carlin is a little bit defensive about his pedigree mm. uh because he's doing this popular history thing but and sam harris See, I find Sam Harris interesting because he is – I listened to the one with Neil deGrasse Tyson where Neil deGrasse Tyson gave him a little bit of advice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I thought was spot on because that's how I feel about Sam Harris, which is that he has very well thought through ideas. He's not, I don't think, bigoted. No. But he is – people dismiss him. And friends of mine, smart, clever, thoughtful friends of mine, dismiss his opinions as bigoted because he refuses to use the proper language, to use the kind of terms that people use to make the proper. But um, you've just used the word proper twice, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm I'm saying proper as as in proper means social propriety, like what is considered socially proper now is different from what was considered socially proper 20 years ago and I mean it in that way it is it is considered rude to talk in the way that he talks that the in use the language he insists on using and not make the disclaimers he but refuses to make But which language do you mean 
I th- I don't think it's the language that he uses. I think it's the arguments that he makes. I don't think he, you know, he's not going, um, you know, he's not dropping the n bomb and no, um, but he's not he's not he's not really using. He, I've I've heard him swear on his podcast when he really lost his temper, but not at someone. Um, but but I don't mean that. I mean, if you're talking about the ideas that he's talking about, particularly Islamism, and uh, the wars that are arising in relation to that and religion and so on and so forth. The, and I'm going to say proper again, like the the socially uh, acceptable format of that is to say, of course I don't mean everybody here, this is a very particular group or this is a very particular manifestation. You 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 frame your claims in in a way that allows people who have affiliations to not feel personally attacked. I think and that's I don't right. Know that that's but necessarily a, a, a good thing for society, but it's the way that people talk now. Yeah, but I think that he objects to that. I think that he objects to a rule about how you talk interfering with your exercise of reason. But and it doesn't nev- interfere. It's just... I, I mean, just I, gr- I actually agreed with... DeGrasse Tyson's advice to him but I still I must say the extent to which he's guilty of being unclear in what he's saying is a little exaggerated and 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 DeGrasse Tyson exaggerated it he he you know if he's giving statistics he'll give the number he'll give that you know he'll say there was a survey of x number of people I won't raise this because I don't want to attract hate to your podcast, <laughs> but, you know, about a particular issue and 75% of them, would you believe 75% of them gave this answer and that indicates that there's a serious problem in this community, right? He'll say stuff like that and that's a fact. There's nothing politically incorrect. He's just, he's, 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 but he's we live given in a, a you know he's dropped a truth a bomb that now. no one wants to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's and the then thing, people right? will say, "Oh, you use language that wasn't sensitive." Well, he's pretty careful with the words that he uses. He's pretty accurate with the words that he uses. He's just not apologetic and like preemptively defensive. He'll defend afterwards, and that's how he gets into these. And I think that's what De, what DeGrasse Tyson is saying. I mean, to, to make it about numbers again, defending afterwards is pretty useless given that all of the data shows that once people have made up their mind on a an issue, contradictory data cements their wrong opinion. So if you have decided that he is insensitive and Islamophobic because of the language that he's used, later defending him or himself him later defending himself will come across as meaningless because that's well, how people's yeah. minds work I mean and he should know that because yes, he's he sh- yes and no I mean I would rather have someone I would rather he wouldn't have made the impact that he's made on public discussion without having been brash in the way you know well somewhat brash inflammatory yeah inflammatory but i mean even the word islamophobia is problematic in the way that it's applied to him he's not scared of he's not he's not a person who expresses or encourages hatred towards muslims but in sen- in the sen- you know in a in a strict sense it's accurate to say that he's islamophobic in the same way that you would say he is judeo christianophobic in so far as he despises the doctrines of all of those religions and disparages them you know, 
in you know and and the problem is that people don't you know and he'll say he says it over and over again you know i'm attacking bad ideas i am not i'm not interested in um you know harming or attacking or putting down people i'm attacking ideas that have a hold over people and that's what a conversation is right i agree absolutely and there's a really interesting article by paul graham called keeping your identity small because i think that's a lot of where the problem in popular discourse lies at the moment and i'm not saying that i disagree necessarily with sam harris on all of his issues i'm just saying that i think that he when he pretends that he doesn't know why what he says inflames people he doesn't pretend that he doesn't know he doesn't pretend that he doesn't know. He pretends that he doesn't know to the extent that he seems surprised and wounded consistently. That's true. I think, well, I think there are two elements. And he defend, you know, I, I, he'll, he defend, he'll defend himself better than anyone else. Um, but there are two issues. One is, yes, he could, he would give himself probably a firmer basis for his defense if he were more careful in the first place. Yes. One. But two, and he says this, and I think it's true, there are some people who want to read his arguments uncharitably, even to the point of dishonesty. Who, yes. Who want, who are, and maybe that's his fault because he's, you know, he's, he's got them offside at some stage far back. But at, at, you know, nothing that he does, there is nothing, there is no adaptation of his language, there is no you know, proper terminology. There is no structure of argumentation. There is no concession that he could give that would prompt them to stop being dishonest in their reading of him. Yes. I think that there's there's that as well. And that's a more intractable problem. And, and I think that that's his reluctance to concede is because he senses a reluctance on the other side to concede. And that's probably not productive. <laughs> no, but I, I think the point I think that he doesn't acknowledge is that in some forums, I or he acknowledges it, but he dismisses it as the wrong way to be, which is that in some forums, people's ideas are inextricable from their identity. So this is why I was talking about the Paul Graham um, article called Keeping Your Identity Small and about why politics and religion yield such uniquely useless discussions. Uh, and it is, it's, that, it's that. It's that people, if you've decided that you are an X and being an X is constituted by holding certain ideas about the world, if you attack those ideas, you're attack- attacking your being. Yeah. And that's ag- a very hard thing to engage with in a rational way. Yes, and that's... Th- I I yeah I think that's right. I think that's right. Um and unfortunately one of the outcomes of identity politics is that there are more and more categories that are becoming less ideological and more personal yeah. in that more ideas are becoming more associated with more identities. Well, that's yes. I mean, identity politics is the term to describe that you know there's a term to describe it identity politics. identity politics being that that then yes your ideas become and that makes for really it's a really useful uh thing if what you want is an idea that has sticking power is to tie an idea into somebody's identity that their op- opinion about the world an opinion becomes integral and inherent to their 
place in the world so that you cannot yeah. question or unpack that un- opinion without it being a direct attack. That's a really good way if you're a marketer of ideas or a marketer of opinions or if you benefit from certain ideas, it's a very good way to give them staying power. Like if you're looking at things in a capitalist way or an, an economic way, that's where the money is. That's what you want. You want to have ideas that are like that. Yeah, I, I follow you on that, yes. Um, I don't think it's a good thing. No, I don't think it's a good thing too. I think it has good things that are associated with it, which is why it is so dangerous. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. But I think, well, to return to Sam Harris again, uh, he is, if he has an identity that he is very attached to, it's the identity of a person who is intellectually honest which is to say he's amenable to persuasion by reasoned arguments and he genuine and he he is pretty more than most he is capable of being of admitting uh you know of conceding a point yes. at least i don't know if he's capable of admitting on the whole that he's wrong but he's certainly capable of saying or you know for example when he talks to Majid Nawaz who's a who is islamic but uh on the reforming side of islam you know he is he's conscious that he needs to engage w- rather than being kind of totalizing and and treating any iteration of islam as a bad thing i think he's reasonably pl- pragmatic in the very fact that he wanted to have that conversation um Look, and he was al- and he allowed and he allowed Nawaz to kind of p- persuade him about the language that he was using and distinctions that he wasn't making I think the identity of a person if you if that's your identity if you've tied the ideas of your identity into the idea that you're a rational person open to rational arguments. That's a pretty good way of approaching the world. But it does mean that you will dismiss a certain kind of argument. And it's often the kind of argument that have to do with feelings and human feelings. Because, you know, for example, with the argument or the discussion that he had with with Neil deGrasse Tyson, Tyson um, he was saying, yeah, but they're, that's just their feelings. You know, that's not th- – I've said it all accurately and correctly. And Neil deGrasse Tyson said, but they're incapable of hearing it. You need to use different language. And the fact that they are being irrational is something that means that then he will dismiss the need for him to – like it's – Neil deGrasse Tyson as an educator is more interested in what people hear – and Sam Harris is more interested in what he says. But it's pointless to say something if people can't hear you. Yes, perhaps. Although I think that Har- Sam Harris sees worth in saying it anyway in an, in, a, in an assertive rather than a defensive vein because then it's out there. I and I think he sees... I'd, well, I wonder how much he was persuaded by Neil deGrasse Tyson, but I suspect that he sees that there's a pretty close balance there in terms of having an, an articulation of something which is firmer and more provocative and the, the possible benefit of that. Yes, it's, a particu- it's also that he is aiming at a particular audience but purporting to aim at a broader audience than he's actually aiming at. I think that his audience is clearly um, educated, you know, probably tertiary educated, considering the vocabulary that he uses. 
you know, people who are interested in public affairs and sort of somewhat intellectual yeah. and liberal. Well, he thinks of himself as liberal, and this is actually the next thing I, I yeah. would like to talk about, if that's allowed. Yeah, we'll talk about one more thing and we'll wrap up. Um, yes, what I find fascinating about him is that he's always talking about, you know, he thinks of himself as being on the left uh, and identifying with the left, but then he feels like he has a very strong aversion of people who he describes as being on the regressive left, whose commitment to tolerance goes to the point where they sort of is a, is a kind of cultural relativism so that whose commitment to tolerance he thinks precludes them from taking a firm stance against what he perceives to be objective wrongs um against especially against women yes um in 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 other cultures and um and he think you know he sort of he thinks it's a kind of fuzzy thinking or cowardice not to stand firm on the liberal values that you supposedly espouse. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyway, but uh, it's interesting because really what he is is he's a conservative of liberal values. Yes. He, he a- And people who describe themselves as conservatives, especially in America, not so much here. I think the conservatives here are a bit closer to being genuinely conservative. But the people in America who are on the right, who are, who are nominally conservative, are not, in fact, conservative. They're radically um, regressive. They're, they're radically, well, they want something else. They want a different version. And they're not conserving anything. The actual institutions that he wants... What he wants to do is preserve certain institutions and in the sense of, in the abstract sense of intellectual institutions and traditions of liberalism and... Yeah, the idea, I think one of the particular ideas that he has a problem with uh, is the idea that you need to affirm somebody else's values rather than tolerate them yeah that's right so that 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 well i don't i think he goes further i think he's he thinks that you can tolerate beliefs to the extent that they don't conflict with rights that we have appear or at you know seemed to have had consensus about for a long period of time and which and you know so especially women's rights you know yeah, well, I yeah that I can respect you. I can respect your right to have an opinion, but I don't have to respect the opinion. Uh, yeah, I don't have to respect your opinion, and I certainly don't have to tolerate out you know your conduct based on that opinion, which conflicts with a set of values that we've you know that historically have taken a very long time to fight for. Yeah, um, a very long time, it, and yeah, I mean, really, his whole the very difficult problem that he's dealing with are the limits of tolerance. Um, uh, and especially tolerance of other people's intolerance. Yeah. Um, to the extent that that is central to other, other cultures, identities. Identities. Um, but yeah, I think that he's, that he, so he thinks of himself as a liberal and he's constantly bemoaning the state of, the left and liberals and identifies as being in the left but I would never identify with what is called the right but really like he's something of a conservative 
because ideas that used to be conservative progress has happened yeah you know the things that were the basis of conservative and the institutions that were being protected against change they've changed that you know that Whenever that people say, you know, there's old bolted. people in the audience, you might not want to swear. You think old people in the audience now were young in the 60s and 70s. Like, <laughs> they are not prurient people. They don't have... Yeah. You know, they're, they're the least repressive of... Prurient? <laughs> Is that what I mean? Prudish. Okay. Prudish, God. So itchy. <laughs> <laughs> My brains are shutting down. Um, I haven't had a lot of sleep. Um, where can people find you online? I don't exist online. Yeah, I don't. I have a Twitter, but I never put anything on it. Um, maybe one day I'll blog. They can find me online on, on some older episodes of you. That's it. Yeah, there's music that you've got floating around as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't even know if that's still floating around. It is. Um, I play it before my shows sometimes. Oh, that's nice. Very kind. <laughs> um, yeah, it's got to the point of being just about vanity publishing. The cost of keeping it online is barely recouped in the number of streams or sales. And in fact, I think it's already the balance has shifted. Well, if you want to uh, support Henry keeping his music up online, do that. Uh, or just email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com, if you want me to pass on some praise or insults. Uh, thank you for listening. You're having two minutes.